Well, friends, here we are, another episode of the Semi-Seminarian. As always, we're going to continue looking at the Bible in another installment of our series that we're calling the Bible for Grown-Ups. We're going to begin in the beginning, and we're going to look at the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. This discussion is entitled, A Love Affair, because what we're going to see is that God created the universe and created us so that we could fall in love with each other. I hope that you'll see what I'm seeing and I'll see you on the other side. So in this episode, we're going to begin a new series within our study series we're calling the Bible for grown-ups. In this series, we're going to look at the first book of the Hebrew Bible, the Genesis. And rather than beginning in the beginning, let's take just a moment to step out and take the 30,000-foot view and look at the Hebrew Bible as a whole. Then we'll drill down to what the Torah is, and then we'll look at the first book of Genesis. And then in this particular episode, we're just going to focus on the creation narrative that we find in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. The Hebrew Bible is in Hebrew called the Tanakh. And then within the Tanakh, the first five books are known as the Torah. That word means teaching or instruction uh, or law. The first book, Genesis, in Hebrew is known as Bereshit. That comes from the first word of the book, which is common amongst the books of the Hebrew Bible, in which the Hebrew title of the book is taken from the first word or phrase of that book. In this instance, Genesis or Bereshit, uh, it comes from the words in the beginning. That could also be translated as in a beginning. And in English parlance would probably be the equivalent of saying once upon a time. The first five books of the Hebrew Bible, the Torah, is basically a narrative that moves from the creation of the world to the creation of Israel as a free people who find themselves on the edge of the promised land. Now within this narrative, there are some very decisive events. There's the flood and the call of Abraham and Sarah, the changing of Jacob's name to Israel, the call of Moses and Miriam and Aaron. Then there's the exodus of the Israelite people, the establishment of the covenant between Israel and Yahweh. And it begins with a broad view of the relationship between God and not just of the Israelite people, but in the beginning, begins with a broad view of the relationship between God and the whole of humanity. Then it focuses upon a relationship between God and the family of Sarah and Abraham. Again, it broadens its view as the family then grows into a whole people who are called to to be a blessing for the whole world. The Torah can be divided into six major parts. Uh, Primeval history, which we find in Genesis 1 through 11. The ancestral period, Genesis 12 through 50. The liberation from Egypt, which is Exodus 1 through 18. Then there's the stay of the Israelite people at Sinai or Horeb. That's Exodus 19 through Numbers 10.10. And uh, then there's Leviticus, uh, the journey to the promised land, which is Numbers uh, 10.11 through 36.13. And then there's 
the patriarch Moses' farewell, which we find in the book of Deuteronomy. Now, we recognize that the book of Genesis is written by people in their understanding of their relationship with God. Now, if God didn't write the Torah, who, who did? As I had mentioned earlier, traditionally, Moses is associated with the writing of the Torah as the one who taught Israel the commandments from God. However, it's important to remember that the Torah as a whole never actually claims that Moses wrote it. In fact, the description of Moses' death at the end of Deuteronomy would seem to argue against Mosaic authorship of this material. What might it mean if Moses actually didn't write the Torah? So let's, let's begin in the beginning. Let's look at Genesis 1, chapter 1. The words of God read, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God, that word in Hebrew is ruach, was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. God saw that light was good. And he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. Although the opening phrase of Genesis 1-1 is commonly translated in English as I just read, the Hebrew is actually ambiguous and can be translated at least three ways. As a statement that the cosmos had an absolute beginning, like in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, as a statement describing the condition of the world when God began creating. In other words, when in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was untamed and shapeless, and essentially similar to that second version, but taking all of Genesis 1 verse 2 as background information, it could also be interpreted as saying, when in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, the earth being untamed and shapeless. God said, let there be light. Verse 6 of chapter 1. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. God called the vault sky, and there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. Now the Hebrew word rakia here, or vault, is of an unspecified material. It represents the boundary between heaven and earth, and its main function is to hold back the waters that are above. Some mountains are identified as intersecting the sky and perhaps holding it up. The concept of heavenly waters is the natural human deduction that's drawn from the, our experience of precipitation. If water comes down from the sky, it seems that there's water up there. Thus, the sky becomes the pivotal phenomenon associated with weather. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land and the gathered water he called the seas. And God saw that it was good. 
Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to the various kinds, and it was so. The land produced vegetation, plant-bearing seeds, according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it, according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. Now, the indication that the land produces vegetation here is not a statement about the land being somehow involved in creation. What is actually being created by God here is a function whereby the land that is spoken of regularly and characteristically, in other words, in order of things, produces vegetation. It, the, the principle of fecundity whereby agricultural can exist and food can be grown. Verse 14 of Genesis 1 continues, And God said, Let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. And let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. The author or authors of Genesis now has emptied the elements of the cosmos of their personal traits we find so frequently in ancient Near East, uh, Near East text. Um, the sun and the moon, for example, are not depicted as gods in the Genesis account as they would have been in other Near East literature. Verse 16 continues, God made two lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky, here we go again, to give light on the earth, to govern the day and night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. Verse 20 continues, And God said, Let the water teem with living creatures. Let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems and it moves about in it according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. In the mythologies of the ancient Near East, a variety of Terrible creatures inhabited the sea. These are occasionally associated with the threatening forces of chaos that need to be defeated and harnessed by creator deities. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. Verse 23 continues, And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. Verse 24 says, And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us... Make mankind in our image, in our likeness. We'll come back to this just in a second. So, that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all of the animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. 
Now let's pause here just for a second and ask ourselves, to whom is God speaking? There are four popular answers to this question. One, that God is speaking to angels. The second suggestion would be that the use of us there is just a plural usage to indicate the majesty of God's station. The third uh, possibility is that the plural should just be translated as a singular. It's just a mistranslation. And then the fourth possibility is that the us refers to the members of the Trinity. So let's look at each one of those. The first instance, the angels. Angels, uh, some have uh, taught that the reference to us refers to God speaking to angels. Now this has been a very popular interpretation amongst the Jewish people. However, doesn't fit with the rest of Scripture. In fact, nowhere do we find angels involved in any type of creation. According to the Bible, angels are created beings and not co-creators with God. Others have argued that the plural is only a plural of majesty, which speaks to God's dignity and God's greatness. Because God is just simply too majestic to be spoken of in the singular. They argue that the plural form of the noun of God, Elohim, uh, can be explained somewhat in that way. That word Elohim is a plural. It's been contended that the phrase, uh, let us, makes reference to discourse where the subject, although singular, speaks of himself in the plural. Though this use of editorial we is popular in Western literature, there's just simply no evidence of it anywhere else in the Hebrew Bible or in any literature of the ancient Near East. One of the most common ways of viewing this verse is that we have communication within the members of the Trinity, our fourth possibility. Though not explicitly stated in the verse, the implicit nature of the Trinity seems to be evident. Elohim plural, the Hebrew noun Elohim used throughout chapter 1 is plural in form, but when used it takes a singular verb. To me this appears to speak of the plurality of persons within the nature of one God. The pronoun us also seems to suggest itself a plurality of persons. When this phrase is used elsewhere in scripture it seems to bolster the idea of the Trinity. In the third chapter of Genesis, chapter uh, 3, verse 22, has God stating that the man is like one of us. There are some Christian interpreters who believe it's not correct to find a reference to the Trinity in this passage. They, in fact, argue that the Trinity was not revealed until the New Testament and that the passage could be better interpreted as something else, like the plurality of majesty. While affirming the doctrine of the Trinity, they deny that we should read it into this particular passage. They don't believe that it would have been in the mind of the writer or it would have been in the mind of the audience. That's a pretty compelling counter-argument. Genesis chapter 1 verse 27 continues, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. 
Now, this is in stark contrast to the role of humanity that we find in other examples of creation stories within the ancient Near East, where, in fact, in almost all of them, humanity is created to serve the gods. In Genesis, here, we see the attribution to all people what seems to have been the sole prerogative of the king in the rest of ancient Near East literature. Now from verse 29 here, we see this newly imagined role as the created in relationship with the creator continue. Verse 29 says, Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth, and every tree that has uh, fruit with seed in it, they'll be yours for food. And to the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw that he had made all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus ends the reading of chapter 1. Now chapter 2 continues with a shorter condensed version and in some ways a little bit different than what we just read in Genesis 1. Genesis 2 is an additional creation story that begins uh, with a conclusion from chapter 1 that says, Thus, the heavens and the earth were completed in all of their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing, so on the seventh day he rested from all of his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all of the work of creating that had been done. Now here's this second account here. Verse 4 of chapter 2 says, This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Now, Genesis begins with a time when no irrigation or planning strategies of organized agriculture were actually being carried out by the people. In the ancient Near East, this obviously would then result in no offerings for the gods. In Genesis, though, God plants the garden and then puts people in it. The similarities show this common idea that creation accounts precede from an unordered, non-functioning non beginning, in other words, chaos, through an ordering process. This is the way that we imagine these ancient people of the Near East, imagine their relationship with this one God. That out of chaos, out of the lack of organization and lack of structure, through divine intervention, ordering and process, came to civilization. This beginning here doesn't mean that God had not yet produced any plants. It means God has brought an ordered process to cultivation. Verse 7 of chapter 2 continues, Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. That word is neshema. And the man became a living being. Man is made from the dust, and since he'll also return to dust, all people can be seen as created from the dust. 
The creation of Eve from Adam's side, likewise, expresses a relationship between man and woman that permeates the race. In these, Adam and Eve are actually archetypes which represent the whole of humanity in creation, just as they do in their own sin and their own destiny, which, unfortunate to the human condition, is death. Their function as archetypes to this story does not necessarily suggest that they're not historical individuals. It only suggests that they actually function more importantly as representatives of the race of humanity. Verse 8 continues, Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. Then Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The phrase there, good and evil, that phrase, tov wara, it literally translates as good and evil, but it might be an example of a type of figure of speech which is known as a mirism, which is a literary device that, pop, uh, that pairs up opposite terms together in order to create some broader general meaning so that a phrase like good and evil, tov wara, might simply imply everything. So a knowledge of everything. Verse 10 continues, A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there, it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. Verse 12 says the gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is Gion. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris, and it runs along the east side of the of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Recent investigations have attempted to identify the Pishon as a major river that has since dried up in antiquity. This possibly emerges from the analysis of sand patterns and satellite uh, photography that we have made with technological improvements which have since revealed an old riverbed which actually runs northeast through Saudi Arabia from the Hejaz Mountains near Medina, which happens to contain one of the richest gold mines in the region, to the Persian Gulf and Kuwait near the mouth of the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers. Verse 16 continues, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it, and the Lord... God commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you'll certainly die. The Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them, and whatever the man called each living creature... That was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all of the wild animals. In ancient Near East culture, the power to give something a name gave the namer power over that individual. Again, what we're seeing here is this expression by the divine 
to enter into a relationship with the created over creation. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib that he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and shall be called woman. She was taken out of man. That's why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. And Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. In Genesis, the nakedness of humans here doesn't appear to be a negative comment, though it is contrasted through wordplay to the craftiness of the serpent in the next verse, which we'll study in the next section. Uh, and it might actually refer to a relative nativity. So what we see here in the first two chapters of Genesis are an account of the creation of the world. Now, what many people in our secularized society today want to focus on is the impossibility that someone would be able to describe the events of the creation of the universe before they were themselves ever created. And that's not necessarily the point of this primeval story. The story is not necessarily how God created the world, but that God created the world. In other words, it's not the how, but the who. And the first two accounts of the creation of the world that we find in Genesis 1 and 2, the author or authors are trying to exhibit their understanding of the way that the divine, a creator, a a being that exists outside of their creation interacts with the created of the world. Now, the Hebrew account certainly exists in common with other examples of the creation story that we find in ancient Near East cultures. For example, the Epic of Gilgamesh, uh, which we will learn about the flood account. There's also the Enuma Elish. But what makes this particular account different, the reason why it should be important to us as followers or believers in Yahweh, in God, as Christians, uh, in the way that Christianity sees itself in relation to the creator Hebrew God, the difference here is that there is but one God and that God created his creation out of a desire to live with them and operate with them as the way, as best as we can understand it, right, within our own mortal frames, as individuals that work in relationship, in covenant with God, and not merely subject to God. And what we find here is the very first expression of a love affair. God creates his created in an effort to have a loving relationship, not a relationship that is based on servants because 
the gods have become tired and weary, so they create servants to appease them. This is what makes the Genesis account unique. In that God, Elohim or Yahweh, the way that we perceive the Jewish or Christian God, created his universe so that he could have a relationship with us, that we might live in relationship with him in in a love affair. Now things right off the bat turn ugly. And eventually human humanity will con- and continually will mess up that relationship. But the beauty of this love is that God continues to pursue his desire. And we'll pick that story up next time when we look at Genesis chapter 3. Well, there you have it. I hope that that was as uh, enlightening for you as it was for me in preparing it. I just want to tell you uh, about a couple of uh, things. The first is a change to the podcast. In uh, contrast to what we've been doing with a Bible study uh, in the past, uh, every two weeks we have been releasing a new installment of our series over a particular book of the Bible in which we are calling the Bible for grown-ups. We're going to add a, a new installment in that that second week. So we'll have a, a new episode every week. So what we'll do is we'll introduce a new study of a particular book of the Bible in which we look at particular chapters. And then on the next Friday, we'll have a commentary about some of the things that we found and maybe answer some questions that may have rose over that uh, installment from the week before. So we'll be uploading new episodes every single Friday. On one Friday, we'll upload the new lecture series installment. And then the next Friday, we'll have commentary, perhaps probably uh, correcting maybe some of the mistakes that I'd made in the initial lecture. And also uh, delve a little bit deeper into some of the concepts that maybe I just brushed over in the lecture part. I hope that you'll enjoy it, and uh, I hope that you will continue to like and subscribe to the podcast. While I'm talking about that, if you like what we're doing here at the Semi-Seminary, I would appreciate it if you'd do me a favor. However it is that you listen to the podcast, if you would subscribe to the podcast, that way you know when new episodes are coming out. Also, if you are subscribing to this podcast on a podcast provider that allows you to Uh, rate and review the podcast, we would certainly appreciate if you could take the time to rate and review the podcast. It helps uh, the podcast grow up in the listings. It also uh, gives people a little bit of feedback on what they might expect. Anyway, I'll see you next Friday as we take just a moment to delve a little bit deeper into some of the concepts that we just discovered of a love affair, Genesis chapter 1 and 2. I'll see you next week.